The term chassid, often translated as pietist, although deriving in truth from the Hebrew word chesed, which means loving kindness, has a long genealogy in Jewish history. The chassid is one whom, according to early rabbinic literature, goes beyond the letter of the law towards its spirit, who is generous and encourages others to generosity, who is slow to anger and fast to forgive, who humbly disavows possessions and yet respects the boundaries of the other, who shows up and does the work, who puts the concerns of others before their own, who is kind even to the wicked sinner and the undeserving, who meditates for an hour before praying, who pursues justice with compassion and dignity, the one who does loving kindness towards their God, fellow human and the world around them, in the hopes of participating in the redemption of all of the above. In subsequent usage, the chassid is one who ideally is guided by love, intoxicated by the sublime and driven with humility and joy in their quest for authenticity, ecstasy, and union with the real, with God. Throughout Jewish history, there have been many individuals and groups who have adopted this label for themselves and strove to live by what the label demanded of them. The first usage, like many Hebrew terms, goes back to the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, mostly found in the book of Psalms, in reference to King David and fellow pious individuals, and on two occasions, even God is called a chassid. Following the Bible, there were the Hasidim Harishonim, the early pietists of the Second Temple period, the Hasidi Ashkenaz in Germany of the 12th century, and the Hasidi Mitzrayim in 13th century Egypt, each connected throughout time by a beautiful thread woven of shared inspirations and aspirations. But the most well-known of all Hasidic movements in Jewish history, the one which most people refer to when they speak of Hasidot or Hasidism without any qualifying prefixes or suffixes, is the dynastic religious revivalistic movement, which springs out of mid-18th century Eastern Europe under the guidance of Yisrael Baal Shem, also known as the Baal Shem Tov, literally the master of the good name, or sometimes by his acronym, simply the Besht, and subsequently propagated more formally by his students, most notably by Dovber the Magad of Mezrich. Under the hand of the Magad, the real mastermind behind the consolidation and dissemination of Hasidism, the movement grew so rapidly that by the time of his passing in 1772, 20 or so of his hand-picked disciples, each spiritual giants in their own right, were dispersed to see the movement all over Eastern Europe and further afield. Arn of Karlin, Menachemendel Vitebsk, and Schneerzaman of Liadi, taking it to Lithuania and Russia in the far north, Yechil Michal of Zlachev to Galicia, and Menachem Nachem Tversky to Chernobyl in the east, and Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev remaining nearby, the brothers Zush of Anipoli and Elimelech of Lezhensk, establishing it in Galicia and Poland via the latter's three main students, Menachem Mendel of Rimanov, Yisrael Hapstein of Koznitz, and Yaakov Yitzchak Horowitz, the Chayza, the seer of Lublin, each one's primary students continuing their own dynasties. For example, the Chayza student, the Yid HaKadosh of Pshischa, followed by his students, Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshischa and Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, concurrent with Reb Nachman of Breslov in Ukraine, each carrying on the Hasidic torch with their own particular strain and flavor. And later, even in 1777, Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk and Avram Kalisker even bringing a large immigration of Hasidim to the Holy Land and establishing Hasidic communities, mainly in the Galilee. According to Hasidic tradition, Hasidot was injected into the world in the time of the Baal Shem Tov 
to awaken it from a state of spiritual slumber, to awaken the collective consciousness from a coma which it had fallen into. To give a bit of historical background to what's happening here, in the time of the Baal the material situation of Eastern European Jewry, both economically and politically, was precarious to say the least, and their religious and spiritual state wasn't much better. With huge economic and social disparity between the educated elites and the disenfranchised and disparaged masses. This precarious and fragmented state was the aftermath of a series of tragic events in which the collective soul of European Jewry had been crushed both in body and spirit, in body by the boots of the Chemelnitsky massacres in 1648 and 49, and in spirit by the broken false hopes of the messianic contender Shabzai Tzvi dashed upon the rocks of Antropol, where Tzvi publicly converted to Islam on the 16th of Elul, September 1666. This double blow, according to Hasidic historiography, left the collective Jewish spirit comatose, the condition to which Yisrael Baal Shem was the cure, whose very being called them by name, Israel, to awaken from their slumber from within. The Hasidic movement, like any, is hard to pin down and to define with any exactitude, but is marked and recognizable by its particular forms of dress and dance, melody and liturgy, language and literature, pathos and prayer, songs and stories, meditation and contemplation, by its vitality and originality. This class on Hasidic thought is being done in collaboration with a good friend of mine, Philip Holm, over from the channel Let's Talk Religion. Philip is making fantastic content covering a broad array of the world's religions, their thought, philosophies, poets, and mystics. Please do check out his work over at his channel, links in the description. And along with this video that we are publishing, Philip has produced his own video on Hasidism, which I highly recommend you checking out. Links all posted in the description. It is a real pleasure to be producing content alongside great educators like Philip in this realm of religion and philosophy. And I'd like to thank Philip for this opportunity to join him in sharing something of my own tradition. It's a little difficult, if not impossible, for me to speak objectively about the Hasidic movement and maintain the scholarly disposition of the distant cool observer that we try to do with some other traditions, thinkers, and movements within the world of philosophy and mysticism that we present here at the channel. Because of just how close to home the Hasidic movement is for me, and I mean that in the most literal sense, because as many of you may know, I grew up in a Hasidic home, one filled with the warmth, beauty, and love of Hasidut, and was exposed to the Hasidic Weltanschung in my mother's milk and my father's lap. And as such, whatever I'm about to say about Hasidism will be saturated and tinged by that inalienable intimacy which she and I share. One which even makes my referring to her as Hasidism, like it's some kind of ism out there, feel awkward on my tongue. I'd much rather call her by her indigenous name, Hasidus, constitutive not of folklore, sociological factors, inner dynastic rivalries and conflicts, as academics may sometimes try to dissect her, but rather made up of Darke Hasidus, the Hasidic practice, the way of life, Teres Hasidus, the teachings of Hasidus, also called at various points in history, Dach, the words of the living God, and even earlier, a fiery law for them, incidentally the acronym of the Baal Shem Tov's daughter, Adel, and of the relationships between Chassidim, and that particularly unique relationship between Rebbe and Chassid, master and disciple, teacher and student, parent and child, turtle doves in the cleft of the rock. I sincerely hope that my intimacy with Chassidut 
makes up for my lack of objectivity, if there even is ever such a thing, or, or if such a thing is desirable. For the sake of full disclosure and transparency, however, the Hasidic branch that I grew up in, and consequently have been most influenced by, is the Chabad dynasty, also known by its other name Lubavitch, or sometimes hyphenated together Chabad Lubavitch, known among many things for its uniquely rigorous and systematic philosophical approach to Hasidic mysticism, placing a heavy premium on the intellectual, contemplative pursuit of God, as evident from its very name, Chabad, a Hebrew acronym for Chachma, Bina, Dat, the first three intellectual or cognitive sfirot on the tree of life, usually though poorly translated as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. If you'd like to know more about those, check out our class we did on the sfirot. But also hopefully balanced by its alternative name, Lubavitch, Russian for hamlet or city of love, and sometimes even hyphenated together Chabad Lubavitch uniting heart and mind, thought and love, a cognition that leads to true passion and love. I aspire here at the Seekers of Unity project to embody both of those values together in our pursuit through this channel and Ahavasichlet, an act of intellectual love, Chabad and Lubavitch. And, as we started this love affair by saying, foundational to any intellectual pursuit is being intellectually honest and transparent, and therefore, you ought to know that my understanding, interpretation, and presentation of Hasidic thought will inevitably be influenced by this one particular stream's interpretation, and will consequently emphasize aspects which others see as auxiliary, and ignore things which others see as primary, c'est la vie, but at least now you are aware of that. As to whether I still identify as a chassid, an appropriate question given the tone of this introduction, I can only repeat the fine answer given by my grandmother, may she live and be well, who immigrated to America after having grown up in a distinguished family of chassid gur and married my grandfather, a Chabad chassid at the time, to the question of, are you a chassid, my bubby would always and continues to answer, ich prov, I try. Okay, I'd like to finally warn you that this series is going to be a fairly deep dive, not for the faint-hearted. I encourage you to slow down the playback speed as necessary, somewhere over here, and feel free to ask me to clarify anything down in the comment section beneath the video. Because of just how close this subject is to my heart, choosing what and how to cover it, the appropriate scope and depth, choice of language and degree of context to provide, were all immensely difficult questions to answer. I decided to approach this presentation by focusing specifically on Hasidic thought, particularly its metaphysics, theology and theosophy, its mystical theory as the title indicates. Now, I'm not doing this to downplay the importance of its social history, its lived communal dynamics, its private and collective spiritual experiences, techniques, practices, and ethics, its literature, storytelling, or hermeneutics. Those are all super important and deserve their own videos. But we have to choose one thing to cover if we're going to talk about anything here. Part of the challenge of defining Hasidic thought is the sheer diversity of expression and articulation which emerges within even the very first few generations of Hasidism, where even among the students of the Magid, the student of the Bashamta, the founder of their movement, there's already so much diversity and little unanimity, each of the leaders, the rabbis, as they're known, speaking their own unique voice. Despite this diversity, however, there are some common themes that unite nearly, if not all, early Hasidic thought, particularly in their attitude towards religious worship, such as the emphasis of worshipping God with joy, the striving for a 
a cleaving or attachment of oneself with God's imminent presence, a cultivation of the dat, the knowledge and awareness of God's imminence, and understanding that the self-contraction, the tzimtzum of God, as elucidated by Isaac Luria, was to be understood non-literally, more on that later, the shared goal and work of raising the fallen sparks of godliness back to their source through mitzvot and ordinary deeds, more on that later as well, and the attempt to reorient all of one's middot, one's emotional, intellectual, and ethical character traits towards God. I don't want to suggest that there's some easily discoverable, quantifiable essence of Hasidism that differentiates it from other manifestations of Jewish pietism, mysticism, or spirituality, such as has been attempted by scholars, be it the chassid rabbit relationship, the role and place of the tzaddik, the imminence of God, the neutralization of messianism, the ethicization of Kabbalah, or also Buba's fourfold pillars of chassidot, hislavos, avoida, kavana, and shiflos, which can be translated as ecstasy, service, intentionality, and humility, or alternatively, enthusiasm in a work, mindfulness, and self-effacement. Chassidut, in my estimation, is far more complex than any of these simple four-point characteristics or a simple relationship to Kabbalah. Let us instead rather begin by exploring some of the native and indigenous ways that Chassidut chooses to self-define before launching into our attempt to give a bird's-eye view a metaphysical map of Chassidut. One way, as we've seen, of framing Chassidut is by situating it in relationship to Kabbalah, the movement of Jewish mysticism which serves as the springboard and background for Hasidut, although the relationship between the two is far from simple. One way Hasidut speaks of its own distinction from Kabbalah is that, quote, while the secrets of Kabbalah were reserved for a restricted cadre of spiritual elites, those with innately lofty souls, or those who worked on spiritually refining themselves, Hasidut, however, in its own self-conception, made these most obtruse esoteric concepts accessible to all by articulating them in intellectual and understandable terms, so that anyone could grasp and comprehend godliness. End quote. This is done, according to Hasidut, by explaining the godly in human terms, with which one can self-reflect and see the divine cosmic workings in their own bodies and psyches. This reconceptualization and re-articulation of Kabbalistic concepts into human terms, essentially, according to Hasidut, not only radically changed the nature and accessibility of those concepts, but also opened up a new vista of opportunities for how the human, and particularly the human body, could be perceived in the view of Jewish mysticism. Rabbi Hillel of Parch once said, Before I became a chassid, I considered my body to be a loathsome thing. But when I learnt the chassidic teaching on Job 19.26, From my flesh I perceive God, that the body is a magnifying glass through which one can perceive godliness, my body acquired good standing in my eyes, said Reb Hillel. The capacity of examining the structure of one's own body, soul, and psyche, created no less in the image of God, to comprehend divinity, becomes so central to Hasidic thought that Hasidot is often labeled Kabbalah psychologized, although it is certainly more than that. Hasidot aims not only to comprehend the divine in terms of the human, but to transform the human into the divine. This second definition of Hasidot, this time in juxtaposition with both Kabbalah and Chakira, Jewish philosophy, Reb Gershon Doivber, a distinguished Hasid of the Tzemach in response to the question, what is Hasidot, 
answered that while Kabbalah describes the Sfirot and parts of him, the creative attributes and manifestations of God, and philosophy explains how God is beyond description and definition, how one can't really understand God at all, for Ilo Yudaitiv Hayisiv, if one would know God, they would be God, a quote from Yosef Albo, a famous Jewish philosopher in his Sefer Haikarim. Chassidot, however, continued Gershom Bear, introduces the possibility of knowing and being. Quote, through toil in body, soul, and heart, one can come to know God, and this knowing is being, yodativ, hoyisiv, one can know God because they are God in the affirmative. That is a direct quote from Sefer Asichus of Yosef Yitzchak Schnersen, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, as wild as it is. This radical goal of conforming to the divine, of becoming that which we really are and always were, might have been the intention of what Schneir Zaman of Liadi, the Altarebbe, the first to systematize and articulate the teachings of Chassidot philosophically, when he answered his grandson Menach Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, after being asked what is the ultimate purpose of Chassidot, the Altarebbe, the great halachist, philosopher, and mystic, answered, the entire purpose of Chassidot is to transform the nature of one's character traits, i.e. not just to change one's natural characteristics, but to change the very nature of one's character. To transform one's natural faculties and potentialities into godly faculties and potentialities, namely, back into their true state. I'd like to end this first installment of the series, of what I hope will be a three-part series on Chassidot, with a very condensed overview of the metaphysics of Chassidus, a map of the terrain of its thought from the proverbial 10,000-foot perspective. The metaphysics of Hasidus operates on two levels simultaneously, sometimes referred to as Yehudi Tata and Yehudi Ilah, the lower unity and higher unity in Hasidic jargon, two levels of reality, two parallel metaphysics that might not be entirely compatible with one another. And therefore, to think Hasidut, one needs to indulge in some paradoxical thinking if you're up to the challenge. The first level of reality which Chassidot operates upon is a place where matter and spirit, body and soul, world and God, are really fundamentally distinct and separate. To the extent that in comparison to the reality of the latter, spirit, soul and God, the former matter, body and world relatively have no existence at all. In the language of Chassidot, they are kulei kamei kulei chashuv, they are in comparison to you God, entirely as non-existent. That is level number one. Level number two, which in reality is something more of a spectrum, if we can generalize just a few thousand pages of complex Hasidic thought and hair-splitting hermeneutics into two sentences, level number two distorts the aforementioned hierarchy with a sophisticated conceptual process of first elevating, then equalizing, then inverting, and eventually obliterating the distinction upon which the hierarchy is predicated. It begins with a re-evaluation of the lower, and a challenge to the aforementioned hierarchy which so securely and unquestioningly placed spirit above matter, soul above body, and God above world. It begins by questioning the unquestionable, and asking, maybe there is something to matter. Forgive me for this blasphemous pun, but maybe matter matters. Kisir Hamar Sonacha, Exodus 23.5, Chassidot reads, when you see your body, your corporeality, your enemy, straining under its burden, and your natural religious instinct is to not help it but to let it suffer, 
The verse demands, Azov tazov imoi, help her, you must surely help her, mipsarcha altisalim, and not neglect your own corporeality. See the materiality for its potential. The second move, not that these moves always follow this precise schema, it's just a schema, is an equivocation, lateralization, or equalization of spirit and matter, in which they get placed as respectable equals, as an azer connegdoi, to oppose and assist, behold your chechadoyeyo, to see the divine, the sublime, intimately, in all things, not just the quote-unquote holy. The third play is the further elevation of the lower, the ascension of matter, of malchut, of the moist material, the lower waters evaporated and condensed above the upper waters, the body that gives energy to the soul in the end of days. The final end of the spectrum climaxes with a thorough rejection of the distinction between these two categories, an annihilation of all dichotomies, inner and outer, upper and lower, body and soul, God and world, you and I, until all that's left is I am that I am, until all that's left is that which was, is, and will be, as one, until all that's left is you. Now, the tricky part is that both of these realities, both level 1 and level 2 as we've been describing them, according to Chassidot, are true, but within an Aristotelian binary bivalent framework, it's going to be a little tricky to hold on to both of these realities simultaneously. It's difficult to see how they could coexist at all. What we need to do here is what God, according to the Kabbalists and Hasidic thinkers, does. We need to be mitzamtzem, to contract and constrict our own knowledge and awareness of other parallel realities, ones which would blow over into ours and mock the stability of the functional illusions we live in. We need to make the mental space to hold those off, to willfully indulge in the illusion with one half of the mind, and to rise above it to a place where there is no above, and other with the other half of our mind. To make sense of this very brief overview, we're going to have to step back and flesh out some of the basic key concepts of Hasidut, and that we will do in part two of this series. Stay tuned for that. I'd like to end this first part of the series with a word on the Balshamtiv, the man who got this whole party started. The Balshamtiv's life was committed to awakening the sleeping soul of his people, a mission which he carried out with selfless love, Havat Yisrael even and specifically towards the poor, unleaded, and oppressed masses, who were seen as inferior to the educated elites of his day. It was for those simple Jews, the Pashti Yidin, as they were known, the people of the land, the Ameha Arts, that the Balshamtiv's affection knew no bounds. The Balshamtiv believed that everyone could be close to God, and that in many cases the unleaded farmer was closer to God than the educated scholar whose learning and arrogance created a spiritual impediment for them in their path towards God. The Balshamtiv taught a radical truth, that the simplicity of the simple Jew perfectly reflected the simplicity of God. The Balshamtiv taught a liberating truth, that through serving God with joy, simplicity, authenticity, and sincerity, anyone could unite with God. The innovation with which the Balshamtiv revolutionized the Jewish world for hundreds of years to come radically altering its historical trajectory until this very day, wasn't the introduction of any particularly new mystical theory or doctrine. The explosive mystical doctrine had already been dormantly laid by the Kabbalists hundreds of years before him, waiting for the right person to come along and ignite them. Two, we might add, positive or deleterious effects. Think Shabzai Tzvi for a minute. However, the Bashantiv detonated, 
this Kabbalistic ancient evergreen fuse by first Robin Hooding the secrets of the mystics from the learned elites, sharing them with any man, woman, and child who would lend an ear, taking the mesmerizing message of the mystics to the masses via his parables, stories, short aphorisms, and new, vivifying interpretations of ancient sacred texts. But not only did he bring them theory, the Balshantov taught them the simplest of people had to directly experience the simplicity of God in the simplest of their daily activities, so that the theory of the imminence, omnipresence, and non-otherness of God didn't just need to be believed as a proposition, but could be experienced directly and intimately, to quote, taste and see that God is good, that reality is one, unified, and ever-present. This privileged experience, once reserved for only a handful of the most enlightened elites of each generation, the Balshantov brought within the reach of every person, this state of selfless bliss, of dvekut, of uniting with the sweet imminence of God. Tearing down the lofty and planting it firmly in the lowly, the ecstatic in the everyday. One can just imagine how this initiative to remove the long-hallowed spiritual and intellectual paywalls, guarding access to an immediate awareness of the presence of the divine, essentially a democratization of God, went over with the pre-existing religious establishments and power structures of his day. They perceived this democratization of God as a direct threat to the very social fabric of European Jewry, a death to the long-standing and well-serving hierarchies, and a potential return to the orgiistic, despotic, heretical shattering of faith wrought by the Sabbatean movement, whose wounds were still fresh and stinging in the collective memory. The religious establishment, fearing a repeated failure to sniff out the danger before it blew up in their faces, rose up in fierce opposition to this new revival of the spirit, with a reactionary movement labeling the nascent Hasidic movement the Mitchazdim, those who were merely feigning piety, and in return received the nickname which stuck, Mitznagdim, the opposition, the enemies of the Hasidim. But far from quelling the nascent movement, it seems that they may have helped instead catalyzing it into a counterculture, revolutionary, suppressed movement of the people, of the masses, of the simple and unleaded, against the bureaucratic elite. For as we know, nothing quite fires up a young movement like some good firm opposition, for a really good religion is always a form of treason, according to Kurt Vonnegut. In a famously enigmatic letter to his brother-in-law, the Balshemtiv describes a soul ascension journey on high in which he encountered the soul of the Messiah no less, and asked of it, a Masai Ka'asemar, when will the Master arrive? The question which Jews had been asking for 2,000 years. To which the Messiah, in the Balshemtiv's vision, answered, when your wellsprings, your waters, your teachings will be disseminated outwards, when the God consciousness, the unity which you experience, will become commonplace and will become the experience of all, from the greatest of them to the smallest of them, until none shall need to teach their neighbor to know God, for they shall all know you. And then, as the good book writes, justice shall flow like a mighty stream, and liberty shall be proclaimed throughout the land. For then the world will be filled with the knowledge of God, with love and unity, as the waters cover the sea. And let us say, Amen. There's still a whole lot more that we weren't able to get to in this one short video, but I hope that this gave you a taste and outline of the major couture's of Hasidic thought and a bit of its history. Tune in next week where we will dig further into the dynamics of Hasidic thought, focusing on the bi-directionality, 
the two directions of Hasidic thought. Stay tuned for next week if that sounds interesting. If you'd like some good academic reading material on Hasidic thought as a whole, you're in good luck because there is so much to choose from, which makes compiling a short list all the more difficult for me, but that's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> Jokes, I'm just doing this because it's what I love to do. Seriously though, if you'd like to keep seeking, I can recommend Chapter 9 in Gershon Shalom's Magisterial Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, Modern Buba's The Origin and Meaning of Hasidism, Moshe Idel's Hasidism Between Ecstasy and Magic, Rachel Elio's The Mystical Origins of Hasidism, and Arthur Green's Speaking Torah. For some canonical collected essays, see Essential Papers on Hasidism, edited by Hundert, and Hasidism Repraise, edited by Ada Rappaport Albert and David Asaf. For some classic anthologies, check out Louis Jacobs' Hasidic Thought and Norman Lamb's The Religious Thought of Hasidism. If you're looking for something less academic, check out Martin Buber's Hasidism or his Tales of the Hasidim, Elie Wiesel's Souls and Fire, or Abraham Joshua Heschel's A Passion for Truth. I'll have to stop there or else this list would go on and on. I haven't even included traditional sources sticking here to more academic ones because there are just so many to pick from. My apologies. Thank you again for joining us. Stay tuned for part two. Go check out Philip's sister video to this one that he made over at his channel Let's Talk Religion, link in the description. Thank you to our patrons for allowing this to happen. Thank you for watching and joining us. Without you, this would be truly pointless. Have fun, keep learning, and as always, keep seeking.